I don't know if you remember, but we recently had anti-war Danny Sherson on this show. He's a retired major from the Army, and he had some very interesting ideas and perspectives to share the last time. I mentioned on that show that I'd keep up with his writing, and so I have an article from him that I'd like to share today. After that, we'll get to further critiques of AOC and the squad. The neocon empire strikes back. Victoria Newland and the Kagans who love her. If your reaction to that title is, who's Victoria Newland? Who are the Kagans? Then it's our job to figure out this stuff together. Biden's war hawk cabinet appointments are a big, big problem. We won't be able to look in the mirror and call ourselves progressives or leftists unless we keep up with it. Recently on Twitter, someone graciously dubbed me a prophet after rereading my April article arguing that American exceptionalism scars both victim and victimizer and which pivoted around actual philosophical prophet Ms. Simone Weil. This social media follower, the Ayatollah of rock and rolla, is clearly a man of cinematic allusion to 1981's Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior, after my own heart. Still, my anecdote transcends any possible proclivity for the old backdoor brag. Because what prompted the Ayatollah's comment was, as he noted, perusing the piece as we watched the tragic comedy of political stupidities unfold. That, of course, was a few days before the delusional but dangerous MAGA maelstrom unleashed on the Capitol yesterday. MAGA maelstrom. That's pretty good. It is perhaps also an illustrative diagnosis of a broken system rigged long before the latest indecency that's been the Trump phenomenon and which status quo Joe neither can nor means to overhaul. That discomfitting truth is re-emphasized each time the president-elect nominates a new national security official for his incoming team. It hardly takes a profit to predict the sort of characters Biden trusts to be caretakers of America's imperium. Frankly, it barely even demands an assiduous researcher. Rather, the only real qualification seems a masochistic willingness to pull the same old threads and discover the same old disappointing interest conflict certainties. And in one sense, that's no small thing. Such commitment in the face of near certain chagrin. It recalls my own glutton for punishment guilty pleasure, true crime murder mysteries or non-mysteries. Call me crazy, but I find myself repeatedly rooting for the husband not to be the killer whenever a woman ends up dead, knowing full well he almost always is. Just for change. And appalling as the ongoing epidemic of violence against women is, and probably something one shouldn't wager even mental TV bets on, the seemingly eternal bipartisan appointment of war industry shills, custom-made and meticulously trained to implement endless war, augurs even higher body counts. And the hits just keep on coming with Biden's bunch. I'd scarcely finished a critical analysis of the probable first female deputy defense secretary, Kathleen Hicks, when I woke to Wednesday's news that Uncle Joe had called up three more problematic prospects from the military-industrial complex minors. The three veterans headed back up to the show are John Finer for Deputy National Security Advisor, Wendy Sherman for Deputy Secretary of State, and worst of all, Victoria Newland as Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs. All are Obama administration alumni. Each worked for former Secretary of State John Kerry at one time or another. These are steady hands, experienced presiders over perennial war, capable company men to captain a systemic ship headed straight for a republic-shattering iceberg. I think it's interesting that he calls women company men, but I think that's an apt description. Biden has entrusted them with the middle management they know. 
Yet they've neither the mandate, mindset, nor skill set to turn this suicide machine around. One fears their fate lies, F. Scott Fitzgerald style, in their personal and professional backstories. So like another tragic literary figure, expect each member of Biden's Gatsby-like gang to beat on boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. A past of feudal interventionism that profits the war profiteers who pay their immense mortgages in communities gated off from both far-flung foreigners and fellow citizens incurring the costs of their imperial nostalgia. Wow, Danny, that was pretty good. I love your literary references. A trio of archetypes, archetypes. There's nothing so uninspiring as a played out platitude. Unfortunately, Uncle Joe's band of brothers and more than the typical tally of sisters are a passing coterie of walking cliches. They're so embarrassingly formulaic that even a cursory investigator can seem a soothsayer. But the truth is, the consistent accuracy of my own depiction of the archetypal Biden bro is more function of a simple and proven model than mystical clairvoyance. So to test that theory and see how closely the three newest appointees hew to my November article model, let's review the paradigm. The archetypal Biden nominee sprang from an Ivy League school, became a congressional staffer, got appointed to a mid-tier role on Barack Obama's National Security Council, consulted for West Exec Advisors, an Obama alumni-founded outfit linking tech firms and the Department of Defense, was a fellow at the Center for New American Security, CNAS, had some defense contractor ties, and married someone who's also in the game. Ooh, this should get interesting. Nothing like a little nepotism. Taking the trio in sequence and by the numbers. First, Deputy National Security Advisor appointee John Finer. Hails from Harvard, then Oxford and Yale. Held a hodgepodge of Obama administration positions ranging from White House Fellow, the Office of the White House Chief of Staff, National Security Council Staff, Special Advisor for the Middle East and North Africa and Foreign Policy Speechwriter for Vice President Biden, Senior Advisor to Deputy National Security Advisor, and now nominated Secretary of State Antony Blinken, and finally Chief of Staff and Director of Policy Planning in John Kerry's State Department. After eight years in Obamian Camelot, Finer oversaw the political risk and public policy practice at Warburg Pincus LLC, a global investment firm that holds some $62 billion in assets led by Obama's first Treasury Secretary, Timothy Geithner. Warburg Pincus also just so happens to invest in companies that do extensive business with blue chip customers like General Electric, Honeywell, and Lockheed Martin. For such platforms as the perennially cost overrunning money pit that is the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter. In his spare time, Finer's also a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. It's worth noting, however, that Finer has some rare, for a Biden bro, redeeming and unique experiences. Before entering government, he was a foreign and national correspondent for the Washington Post, embedded with the Marines during the 2003 Iraq invasion, and later spent 18 months in Baghdad as it lurched toward civil war. Unlike his classic chicken hawk of a future boss, Jake Sullivan, Finer's extensive experience with real Iraqis may have motivated his co-founding the Iraqi Refugee Assistance Project. Well, other than the appointment with the Washington Post, that all sounded pretty good.
Second, Deputy Secretary of State nominee Wendy Sherman may have graduated from sub-Ivy Boston University and the University of Maryland, but she is a professor at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. She then followed platitudinal protocol and served as chief of staff for then-Congresswoman Barbara Mikulski, even managing her first successful Senate campaign. Sherman was also CEO and president of the 2008 financial crash implicated Fannie Mae Foundation and served as Iraqi child sanctioned starvation apologist, Secretary of State Madeleine Albright's counselor. Woo. During the Obama years, Wendy was appointed Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs by Hillary Clinton. Since then, Sherman has worked with or for a range of military, industrial, and strategic consultancy complex-related rackets. Specifically, she was vice chair of the Albright Stonebridge Group, her old boss's international consulting firm, plus serves on the boards of the International Crisis Group and Atlantic Council and is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and the Aspen Strategy Group. Wendy's even an MSNBC global affairs contributor. She's also married to another player, Bruce Stokes, Director of Global Economic Attitudes at the Pew Research Center, Executive Director of the Transatlantic Task Force of the German Marshall Fund of the United States, and a former senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. That said, on the positive side, Sherman was in fact a social worker before entering public policy service and a chief negotiator of the eminently sensible Iran nuclear deal. I don't know, it still sounds pretty shady. All this nepotism is a new plot twist. Lastly, Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs nominee Victoria Newland is an alum of Brown University and held a variety of positions of increasing responsibility in Bill Clinton's and George W. Bush's State Department. In the Obama years, she served as Special Envoy for Conventional Armed Forces in Europe then as State Department spokesperson, and finally as Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs. During her Trump-era holding pattern, Newland was a non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution, CEO of the Center for a New American Security, CNAS, on the board of the National Endowment for Democracy, and senior counselor at, you guessed it, the Albright-Stonebridge Group. Then there's this. Newland's husband is Robert Kagan, an overtly neo-imperialist historian and hawkish foreign policy commentator at the Brookings Institution. And when it comes to Queen Victoria the Troubling, it is that married to someone in the game bit that's particularly unsettling. Enter the neocons Kagan, a family of fiasco artists. Before exploring the implications of her having married into the Kagan's veritable war crime family, it's worth noting that she's a problematic hawk in her own right. With his decision to nominate Newland as Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, Joe may have really done it, risked real war that can't be won and needn't be fought with a Russian nuclear superpower. That's a function of Newland's history of hawkish antagonism towards Moscow, plus meddling to orchestrate a Ukrainian regime change in the nearest of Russia's near abroad. Nominating Newland is nothing less than an unnecessarily provocative finger in the Russian eye. She's a known quantity east of the Dnieper and not in a nice way. She's despised by Mr. Putin and her confirmation will surely serve as a conflict accelerant. 
Furthermore, as a simple and somehow satisfying spiral on the old Wikipedia all too easily reveals, Newland's nuptial connections could offer nothing less than a path back into power for not just the usual Biden bunch, neoliberal interventionists, but Bush-Cheney-era neoconservatives. First off, she was Principal Deputy National Security Advisor to Vice President Dick Cheney from July 2003 until May 2005, rather pivotal and horrifying decision-making years those. Equally troubling, she's married to none other than Robert Kagan, the man Colonel, retired, Andrew Bacevich called America's chief neoconservative foreign policy theorist. In 1997, Kagan co-founded the King Neoconservative Think Tank Project for the New American Century, PNAC, with William Crystal, an outfit which wrote the faux scholarly policy papers and provided much of the intellectual energy undergirding not only the unhinged Iraq invasion, but the broader neo-imperial strategy that's brutally transformed the world and killed maybe millions. And the influences and machinations of the Kagan crew runs far deeper still. Kagan crew, both with K's, that's pretty clever. The still-living 88-year-old patriarch, Newland's father-in-law, Donald, was a signatory to PNAC's Statement of Principles, along with a who's who of war crime architects and enablers such as Elliot Abrams, Jeb Bush, Dick Cheney, Scooter Libby, Donald Rumsfeld, and Paul Wolfowitz. Holy shit. Ms. Newland's brother-in-law and his bride, Fred and Kim Kagan, must represent the familial version of Marx's old truism that history repeats the second time around, or in this case, second generation, as more farce than tragedy. These two fellow West Point faculty alumni may be historians by day, but they're cartoonish, if apparently convincing, neoconservative zealots in their free time. Both advised on, some say cooked up, Bush's Iraq surge strategy, received official hearings and held positions on the staffs of Generals David Petraeus, Stanley McChrystal, and John Allen in Baghdad and Kabul. Kim is an especially enthusiastic and frankly offensive to we foot soldiers, combat voyeur, having, according to her own bio, conducted many regular battlefield circulations of Iraq and Afghanistan between 2007 and 2010. Suffice it to say, I've heard at least one highly respected senior military officer say something to the effect of, Oh Christ, the damn Kagans are coming to visit again. In other words, their distant dogmatic abstractions didn't usually jive with the realities of soldierly leaders on the ground. No doubt these armchair militarists at least looked the part on their brief bits of war tourism, or is it war porn, Kim, in particular, tends to sport the latest in British Raj khaki and American combat fatigue fashion on her Potemkin-like jaunts through amply guarded Basra and Baghdad markets. That really does sound sick. That way she could look the part before penning premature progress reports long after she's left the exasperated and sleep-deprived guardians of her human safari strolls to continue killing and dying in wars that, despite her emphatic protestations to the contrary, have yet to end. So it goes. And so some will ask if Newland's husband and his neocon royalty family will really have meaningful influence on how her suit of the political affairs under her undersecretarial charge at state. It's hard to say, of course, but count this author a firm believer that the personal is, in fact, often political and possessing enough of the historian's eye to know that informal and romantic relationships are often uncomfortably impactful. Look no further than Sarah Polk crafting 
drafting speeches and correspondence for her Mexico conquering husband. Edith Wilson basically taking control of the presidency after Woodrow's publicly downplayed stroke, or even Nancy Reagan returning to the stars, well, an astrologer, to time everything from White House meetings, travel, and even Ronnie's cancer surgery. Besides, Newland has paved a hawkish enough path of her own these last three decades to raise five alarm fire bells. Just one pesky problem. Thanks to Biden's batch of other picks, there'll be only interventionist arsonists running the response. That is, the rest of Joe's almost absurdly incestuous lot, a sort of best friends gang that joins all the same clubs. Take the Truman Center for National Policy and its membership of diverse leaders inspired to serve in the aftermath of 9-11 and committed to shaping and advocating for tough, smart national security solutions. Well, some of those members committed to unneeded and counterproductively chicken hawk toughness include passed over Defense Secretary Prospect Michelle Flournoy, formerly Hunter Biden, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, Deputy Defense Secretary nominee Kathleen Hicks, and Secretary of Transportation nominee Pete Buttigieg. In other words, theirs is a small world full of small thinking masquerading as big ideas, and that, babies, is a formula for four more years of failure. And now we turn to this cool blog, Revolution Continues, for more battering of the squad. I wonder if it's beer battering. That might be appropriate. Dude knows the score in DC. Hey man, just give the corporations a relief check equal to what they paid in taxes. Ding, ding, ding. The Fraud Squad, window dressing for the DNC store by Coast Watcher. Coast Watcher. The Squad, it began with those wonderful, talented women who set out to challenge the Democratic Party's centrist right stance. How they were praised for their progressive values, their drive, their youthful vigor. How we hoped they would pick up the torch of socialism from Bernie Sanders and carry it forward into a bright Democratic Party future. Well, guess what? It seems our idols have feet of clay. There's no denying the so-called Democratic Party detested them from the get-go for the very reasons I outlined above. The squad became a burr under the saddle of business as usual and attracted brickbats and catcalls from those of a Democrat persuasion as much as they did from the GOP and Trumpanzees. Trumpanzees. Then the dirty Dems figured out how to tame the squad and bend them to its will. To take one member in particular, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she has progressed from a barkeep to congresswoman and blazed a path into the headlines. Now she pulls in tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars in speaking fees per speech. AOC can now earn more in one night giving a speech than she possibly made in all those years of tending bar combined. Has she forgotten what it's like to scrimp and save, to worry about health care coverage, or if she has enough money to cover rent and or food this month? Perhaps she has forgotten what it's like to be a struggling worker. Her new congressional plan health care coverage is premium quality and for life, regardless if she continues in government or not. If she does depart her political career, there's many a big business concern that would offer her a lucrative position on its board, complete with perks. How does that old adage go? Oh yes, power corrupts. I'm sure all that lobbyist money helps you sleep at night if your conscience bothers you too. So all the so-called Democratic Party had to do was wait until the delicious benefits of being a professional national level politician kicked in. 
then the squad no longer would have any desire to overthrow a system which works so well for them. Instead, their new job is to act as window dressing, something shiny to make it appear the Democratic administration to be of Joe Biden really is progressive in its values when everyone admits that in stark reality, nothing will fundamentally change. Let me remind you that Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib did a lot to get Joe Biden elected. The way this article puts it, it's so obvious how controlled opposition works. And it's so obvious that we're being sheepdogged again. Back to the story. What the DNC store has to offer isn't worth the time of anyone to the left of center. Let me repeat that. What the DNC store has to offer isn't worth the time of anyone to the left of center. It'll be the same old attack on civil liberties from Biden, a man who made a career out of formulating oppressive laws. It'll be a program of austerity and tightened belts from a man who has wanted to cut Social Security for decades. Biden flat out stated he'd never tolerate Medicare for all and he would veto any such bill that reached his desk. The Force the Vote movement, birthed by the New People's Party and other aligned groups, and Jimmy Dore, has pulled back the curtain and revealed who the real wizard of DC truly is. Surprise, it's the health insurance industry. The squad of brightly painted mannequins in the shop window has failed to fool anyone for long. I don't know, I'd say shit libs are still fooled. When AOC came under pressure from the public for not agitating and pressing for Medicare for all in the middle of this dreadful pandemic, she complained and whined like a child that people were acting violent towards her on Twitter for calling her out. So sorry, Alexandria. You chose to become a politician. That means you have to take the blows as well as the bouquets. And if you think you're under pressure to provide health care and a decent stimulus package for your constituents now, you ain't seen nothing yet. This is a spine. If the squad had any, they would have forced Pelosi out. In the recent vote for Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi gained re-election by the narrowest margin in modern history. Had even two of the squad not voted for her, then Pelosi, with all her neoliberal centrist authoritarian attitude and praise for overthrowing democratically elected leaders of South American countries, would have been left high and dry. It seems the squad's main argument for following the Dem party line is that had they not voted for Pelosi, then a Republican would have become Speaker of the House. And Jimmy Dore showed us clearly that that simply was not true. For a Republican to become Speaker of a House that has more Democrats than Republicans, quite a few Democrats would have had to vote for said Republican. That was purely a farce. Back to the story. Since both parties receive funding and policy guidance from big business, they are effectively one and the same. The so-called Democrats simply wear blue ties, the Republicans red. If I were a Republican or a Democrat, I would feel compelled to wear a shit-stained tie. Even a casual glance through social media shows a huge amount of anger at the way the squad betrayed the working poor and the struggling across the country. The hashtag fraud squad has quickly trended. Has the window dressing failed to distract us? Are people sick of politics as usual? The rapid response of the American public via social media indicates this. The United States seems to be at a crossroads. The neoliberals' happy fallacy that things will be so much better once Trump is gone is being shown for what it is. The divide between the rich and poor has never been so large and so clear to all. And this is me. The divide between the rich and poor is probably going to widen even more quickly with a Biden presidency than with a Trump presidency. 
And don't forget that Wall Street loves Kamala. Those bourgeoisie who think nothing of spending their $600 stimulus check on a hair appointment before they go to brunch keep telling us, now isn't the time to insert urgent public need here. We're supposed to forget how the so-called Democratic Party screwed the left again and move on, but they've underestimated the working classes. Soon they'll find a cold wind blowing through their lives and the window dressing of the squad won't be able to save them. Here's Coast Watcher's bio. Coast Watcher possesses Superman's supervision. He can see through the distractions of the neoliberal establishment and figure their game out. They enjoy the lobbyists' money they receive for simply being in office. They're not worried about dying in the COVID-19 pandemic since they know they'll get to go to the front of the line at the hospital and the vaccination queue. We, the struggling workers, will have to become our own heroes and force a vote to gain what we and our families deserve, Medicare for all. The squad and anyone else who tries to hold us up should get the hell out of our way. And we'll end with a tweet by Katie Johnstone. What's it going to take to get American progressives to understand that the Democratic Party is explicitly and deliberately rigged against progress? It's simply not the tool for advancing progressive agendas. It's like watching a kid try to open a can of beans using a sneaker.